0: Hello, and welcome to the Valor Christian Academy Bible Study, Holy Holy. Over the past few weeks, we have seen some of the elements contained in God's command to be holy as I am holy. Life in God's covenant was expected to look and feel a particular way. But, as anyone familiar with the story of the Bible can tell you, that is not what life ended up looking like. At almost every turn, the Israelites failed to be the people that God had called them to be. Their continuous inability to live a holy life ultimately resulted in the Israelites being exiled and driven out of the promised land. This then begs the question, was God wrong? Did he overestimate what the Israelites were capable of doing? Far from it. Today, we will explore God's plan to set all things right when we failed to live as he called us to. Let's dive in. Growing up, my conception of the Israelite exile wasn't really that bad. I knew the stories of Daniel in the palaces of Babylon and Persia. He was offered the choicest food from the king's table. When Daniel interpreted the dreams the king would have, he would always be rewarded, and he lived close enough to the king of Persia that when he was thrown into the lion's den, the king couldn't sleep because of how worried he was for his friend. In my mind, Life seemed to be pretty good for the ex- exiled Israelites, an extended, albeit forced, vacation of sorts. This, of course, was not the case. The exile was a tragedy. Lamentations 1 opens with the cry, How desolate the great city has become, that was once full of people. She has become like a widow, once great among the nations. The Israelites had lost their home. Because of their sinfulness, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, among many of the minor prophets, had spent countless hours telling them to repent for the day of the Lord was upon them, and their pleas fell upon deaf ears. Now the warnings had come true, and they were exiled. For many Israelites, the last thing they would have seen of their home was the smoke rising from the temple as their gathering place to worship God burned to the ground. Ezekiel begins his prophetic ministry on the banks of the Kabar River, living among the exiles. Archaeological evidence indicates they lived in shoddy, mud-brick houses, common with the low-quality living situation of exiled peoples. The people here would have been constantly mindful of the differences between their situation and the life they lived at home. The Kabar River was not the Jordan River. It was not full of stories from Israel's history. It stood as a testament to how far they were from their home. The places they were able to worship was not the temple, where God dwelt beyond the curtain in the Holy of Holies. They were strangers in a strange land. And unlike their forefather Abraham, who was once a stranger in a strange land, they were unsure if deliverance was ever coming for them. Coming off of last week's lesson, where we talked about the geographical significance of Israel, One has to wonder if God's plan had been thwarted. The Israelites could not be his holy people, and now they were far from their home, far from the place where God would use them to disseminate his message of grace. Was God's plan shot? Did Israel's unholiness prevent God's holiness? Throughout the book of Ezekiel, God responds to their doubts with a resounding no. This was not the end of the story. Rather, It was another step in accomplishing God's work in the lives of his people to bring holiness to a world in desperate need of it. The prophet's message includes three passages that reveal God's evolving plan to solve our perpetual unfaithfulness. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses recalls the first generation out of Israel receiving God's covenant. The call to carry the covenant culminates in verse 15, When Moses declares the Israelites are to circumcise their hearts, which would enable them to obey God's commands. You see, they are a stiff-necked people and need to cut away that which would prevent them from being the people who God called them to be. Obviously, the first generation of Israelites failed at God's command. So when God reminds the Israelites in Deuteronomy of the covenant, the call has shifted. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, God now declares, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The onus of the covenant has shifted and turned more and more upon God. Israel's failure to be holy is an opportunity for God to reveal His holiness and His grace. Ezekiel 36 takes it a step further. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. The Israelites are no longer people who are unwilling to take the steps needed to follow God. They have hearts of stone. On their own, it is impossible. They needed to fully rely on God for any hope. And the good news is that God is both willing and capable of doing what is needed to be done in one of my favorite songs incomplete by as Cities burn the singer opens the song declaring unless you can part my ribs like the sea and make stone beat there is no hope for me the covenant failed because we have hearts of stone god didn't overestimate our abilities israel's proclamation of new hearts made of flesh was not plan b It was a moment when God said, you were never meant to do this on your own. Rely on my grace and holiness to win the day. When God made the covenant with Abraham, it was God alone who passed through the animal carcasses. This, along with everything else we have seen so far, was God declaring that the full weight of the covenant is upon his shoulders. And the good news is that God can bear that weight where we never would have been able to. The second story is one I'm sure we're all familiar with. Ezekiel 37 opens with the prophet being carried away to a valley full of dry bones. Can these bones live? The Lord asks. Ezekiel tells the Lord they can if he wills it. And Ezekiel, following the Lord's instructions, begins to prophesy to the bones. They reattach themselves. Muscles, tendons, organs, and skin form around the body. And the scene culminates with the breath of God entering the people, and they return to life. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Scholars debate whether or not this scene is literal or figurative. Are these the bones of the Israelite army after being defeated by the Babylonians? Or is it metaphorical to show that God will restore his people? I tend to think this is a literal story because I think it's cooler. Regardless, the idea is the same. These people died in part because of their failure to be holy. And again, God responds to our failure with grace. Where we would bring death, God brings life. Our third and final story comes from Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 10, the prophet witnesses the greatest tragedy of his people's history. The presence of God departs from the temple. God can no longer dwell among his people because of their sin. Will he ever return? That question is answered at the end of the book. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me then out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on the south side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the water flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore, from En Gedi to Engalim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fall. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. God has returned, and he has brought life with him. As you may or may not know, the Dead Sea is the saltiest body of water on the planet. Nothing can live in it. Yet Ezekiel watches as the water from the temple turns the water fresh, and fish begin to settle in it. Fishermen find a career working along its banks, and the trees bear fruit every month. The language here mirrors what we see in Revelation 22 when John gets a vision of heaven and declares, "On each side of the river of life stood the trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nation." The question at the beginning of this episode is what happens when we fail to be holy Like God calls us to be? The answer to that question is that God steps in. Where our unholiness brings death, God does it all with his life-giving holiness. Now this is not an excuse to sin, but an opportunity to be comforted and know that we can never out-sin grace. Every step in our journey towards holiness is merely another moment to allow God to reveal his glory.